Gracious God, our good Father, would you come now and be glorified in this place? Holy Spirit, would you have room now to move in our hearts, to draw, to encourage, to nourish, and to fortify your people in your word, also to convict and to comfort, to help and to guide all who, all who, to whom you would speak this morning. And Lord, would you draw any who don't know you? Would you reveal and show the Son so that Christ might be exalted here in this place? Lord Jesus, um, I pray, use me, work in spite of me, speak even as well so much to me and to all of us, and may your word be honored. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our look at redemption through the eyes of ancient Israel, the eyes of a Moabite widow, the eyes of an Israelite woman who was destitute with the loss of her husband and two sons. Mike did a great job connecting the dots for us last week as he took us through Ruth chapter 3, showing how God was redeeming Ruth and Naomi, and he was using Boaz. And in fact, there's even more connections than I will try to cover in a single sentence. Ruth, in a way, was a picture of uh, a piece of the redemption of Naomi, in fact. So, well, where we are now at the beginning of chapter 4 is Boaz having given his word to Ruth that he would be the one to act as what Scripture calls the kinsman redeemer, the one whom God set up in the law to be available to come alongside a near relative to act in the case of great tragedy in the lives of a family who might find themselves without someone to provide, someone to lead. And so Boaz has said to Ruth there in their meeting in the darkness of the night and separating early in the morning, very much above reproach, Mike covered that last week, that he would go and settle the matter. And he does so, we find, it seems, immediately. Having given his word, he goes forth to secure the transaction that will allow him to act as the kinsman redeemer. But the outcome is not all entirely in his hands. It's not just a matter of him agreeing and then maybe making some tough choices and going and doing some hard work. So much of it, as with everything in the book, relies upon God's providence, relies upon his guidance in his hand and his direction. It's one of the treasures of this book that God so often does things without being the headliner to take credit in an overt way. Boaz needs God's providence and grace to meet again in one event that will change the lives of two women and this one man, and that will also alter the course of history. Pick up with me in Ruth 4, and we'll read the first portion for today. Ruth 4.1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Sorry, I should have said, there's somebody else who could act in the kinsman redeemer role. And he had first rights. He was a nearer relative to Naomi. And so this is the one of whom Boaz spoke. All right, back to verse 1. He was, he was passing by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then Boaz said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother, Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, 
Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, uh, um, Okay, that's not in there. <laughs> I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption, the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Pause there. First picture we see of our redemption reflected through this beautiful story in Ruth is this truth that through one transaction, you have an eternal inheritance. Through one transaction, if you know Christ, through one transaction, you have an eternal inheritance. And what a great encouragement that is. Not through the accumulation of many years of hard work and sweat and earning it on your own and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But through one transaction, your inheritance into eternity is sealed by what another has done. There's a sense in which we could read Ruth 4 and say, well, it's just kind of another day in the gates. See, we should understand what every ancient Israelite would have known well, and that is that the gates of a city are kind of the place where uh, the major public transactions take place. It's the city center, if you will, in that sense. It's where commerce is done. It's the official place where things are witnessed and attested to. Boaz then goes in the gates, and he waits until the man whom he has spoken of just earlier that morning is passing by. It says there in the middle of verse 1, And behold, looky there, the close relative of Boaz, of whom he was just speaking, just happens to be passing by. So he gathers the other party, and he gathers the witnesses, and he seats them, and he begins the proceedings. Now, a couple of things are worth comments, not just for interest's sake or even explanation's sake, but also because they bear on our understanding of what's going on and of the picture of what's being done. It's interesting up to this point that Boaz has made no mention either to Naomi or to Ruth, that there's some land issue here. But every Israelite would know that the primary concern here in the redemption is the buying back of the land and the cultivating of it to provide for this family that now has no one to provide for them. Because along with that should then also come an heir that is raised up, if necessary, by the kinsman redeemer. And then through that, a lineage that would go forth for all generations in the nation of Israel, and yet those pieces are missing. Boaz then, in his introduction to this man, 
says this in verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land. What a strange place to begin. We know full well, all of us who have read to this point, where Boaz is going. His end game is not the land, but it is the appropriate place to begin to find out if this man is interested. When he says here that Naomi has a piece of land to sell, that's not entirely true. Not that Boaz is being deceitful, but probably it's a slight difference either of custom or even of language and interpretation, but it was well understood by the people of the day. Because of poverty, Naomi needs someone to take over the land and bring its production, bring fruit out of it to provide for herself and for Ruth at this point. But she's unable to do that, and she's also unable to procure the person who would come and do that. So she needs Boaz to go in her stead. It's also even possible, although it doesn't say this, but it's, it's possible that the land has, in their leaving, already been loaned out or rented out, leased out to others, and the land is maybe being worked. Somebody needs to go and act as a party with authority to be able to now actually purchase the land and take its rights back and now build it up. So if it's been sold to an outsider, somebody needs to do the work of redeeming it. Essentially, someone's got to be sought to make use of the land. And so that's why we're looking for this kinsman redeemer to take the place, who can either assume the responsibilities to cultivate it or reacquire the rights to do so. Understand what's happening here is, notice, no money changes hand. There's no actual purchase in that sense. It's just an agreement of who has the rights, okay? And then when the man hears this, he says, hey, this, this sounds good. I, I think I will redeem it there at the end of verse 4. I will redeem it. His answer is very quick. He doesn't have any question. Oh, an opportunity, a, a financial boon. Look at what has come my way, he says. And so Boaz is quick. Um, on the day that you buy the field, by the way, uh, you get a couple of people to go along with it. Um, you get Naomi and you get Ruth. Um, how does he name Ruth, by the way? You notice it, as the author does in many places in the book. Ruth the Moabitess. Oh, yeah, by the way, you get a couple of women. They come along with the land. And there is a special responsibility here. And that is, as kinsman redeemer, and that's why we're having this conversation, you are to raise up an heir. Well, the man immediately backpedals. I, I can't, I can't, I just, I don't, I can't, whoo, look at the time. Now, when he says, I might jeopardize my own inheritance, it's altogether possible that that is a legitimate statement. It could just be a full smokescreen, but it's not out of the question. Because if he is going to have an heir and work this land, then the things that he invests in and puts time into ultimately are going to go where? Because he's going to raise up an heir for the deceased, this land and all that it comes from it, ultimately, when that heir is full grown, will go to that heir. So he could instead be putting his time and his energy into building his own land and his own family and his own holdings, right? So there is a, there's some possibility there, and ultimately we don't know, and ultimately it doesn't matter. I do think, though, that this gentleman does not come off well, not well at all. I think we'll come back to that near the very end, because I think there are some clear indications of that. That's why I read it the way I did. 
he's uh, quickly found an excuse to do a 180. What he saw first off as a boon, a wonderful financial opportunity, now he quickly backpedals. I want you to notice in this the honor of Boaz. Because this man is a foil. He is the, the, the compare and contrast to Boaz, a man who is going to step forward and do what the law requires, in fact, far beyond what it requires. And in fact, in challenging the man, when he says, in essence, if you're going to be the kinsman redeemer, then you need to take on these responsibilities of Naomi and of Ruth. Um, there are loopholes here. It is not that clear cut in reading the law in uh, Leviticus and in Deuteronomy that impinge upon this situation. Or it's possible that even when he doesn't have a, where he doesn't have a lot of wiggle room, the kinsman redeemer can take on all of this uh, in words, take over the land, but then once he's in control, decide, eh, you know, I don't think I want to marry her. But what would he lose? He'd lose respect. He'd lose position. He'd lose standing. Notice Boaz on the opposite side of that in contrast to saying, I'll do whatever is required to get the land back into the name of the deceased, to, to care for these two widows and whatever they may need, and to raise up an heir, which won't be to my name, it will be to the name of the one who has gone before. Several of the commentaries do a good job of walking through the details of this and comparing it to the Leviticus and the Deuteronomy statements, and uh, I won't spend the time for that this morning, but, but understand that what Boaz is doing here goes beyond the letter of the law, and what he's, in fact, calling this nearer kinsman to do goes beyond the letter of the law. He's calling him to be a man. He's saying, look, stand up. I don't want you to just do what the law says. I want you to do what the law calls for, what the law means, what the law reveals, what God's heart desires. You make it right for Naomi, and you make it right for Ruth if you're going to take over this land. Boaz is so cool, and it's subtle, but it's there. Even in naming her Ruth the Moabitess, that might be self-serving because he wants to put the guy off a little bit, right? But what does that say about Boaz? Oh, I know this woman. I've, I've seen her. I know her reputation and her ethic. I know how hard she works. Remember the first time he speaks to Ruth? What does he say of her? Oh, it is well known, your story. And how you have come to care for your mother-in-law. And how you have come to seek refuge under the wings of Yahweh. You've left your people and your gods. And you've come to follow the God of the nation of Israel. The one true God. And so he knows her. And he, there's such a perfect fit. Is also a man of great integrity. In fact, within the book, Ruth will be called the Eshet Chayil. Which is the woman of valor. Do you know that um, that's the same term that's used in Proverbs 31, right? Uh, the woman of, uh, what is it? Uh, great value or something character? Wife of noble character. That's what it says. At least in one of the translations. That is the Eshet Chayil. Do you know where the book of Ruth comes in the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures? In the, in the ancient ordering, the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. So you read Proverbs 31, and then you get a story about a wife of noble character, about an eshet chayil. Well, guess what? 
Boaz, in this chapter, in chapter 4 today, will be called an Ish Chayu, a man of valor, a man of great character. Well, friends, it's worth us just pausing here and saying, how do you make your decisions today and how do I make my decisions? Do we go through our lives just thinking through, well, this would be a benefit to me, so I think I'll take it on. There's an opportunity, so I think I'll jump at it. Or do we see beyond that? Do we act like a Boaz? Do we act like a Ruth? And do we say, you know what? There is a glorious opportunity here to glorify God, to obey his word, to go beyond even what he says, and to demonstrate his character and his spirit and his heart. That is what I want to sacrifice for. That is what I want to invest in. What's making your decisions today? What's making my decisions? Well, back to the passage, verse 10. Verse 10 is going to use a word or a phrase here, even if you have a different translation, it's going to say something like this, that may cause us to stumble. Verse 10, after the transaction, he says, you are witnesses. He's telling everybody what's happened so that it is sealed and witnessed. In verse 10, he says, in that transaction, moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess. Was anybody bothered when I read that? I bought me a wife today. That's what I did. Well, understand, and that's part of why I spent the time with the context, there's no money that's changed hands, number one. Number two, the deed to the property hasn't even changed hands today. Instead, what has happened is an agreement that the nearest kinsman redeemer will step aside and the next, who, next kinsman who could be redeemer has the rights. That's what happened. And so that's exactly what we have in parallel in verse 10. Now, Boaz has secured the right to marry Ruth. You see, he could have run off with Ruth before, but you know what? It would have been an unacceptable union. It would have been a dishonorable marriage. E even though, you know, there, there, there wasn't anybody else involved who, you know, that they were uh, uh, committing adultery against that we know of, anything like that. But there was someone else who had the rights and the responsibility, at least within the spirit of the law. So that's what he has accomplished in verse 10. I now have the free right to ask this woman to marry. Nobody's married yet, not on this day. But now as the new kinsman in nearest place, he can redeem her. Make no mistake, what is behind that, I think, is a genuineness of love. Even as in chapter 3, he spoke so surprised, you have done me this great honor that you didn't go after a young man, Ruth. You didn't go after some man's riches, Ruth, although in your desperation you might have, but instead you were willing to pursue me. What we find here is Boaz, I think, in all of this work, not just doing it for the law and for the glory of God, although rightly both of those, but also out of a genuineness of love, a genuineness of jealousy, a right kind of jealousy. And so I don't, I don't balk at the word in 10 too much where he says, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess because what is contained in that expression is the idea of she is mine. She is now mine. They already have some sort of tacit agreement, not, not spoken but unspoken of interest in one another that has just previously happened. And the point of all of that is that that is a beautiful illustration of our redemption as well.
Because we have a God who says of his people, he is mine. She is mine. They are mine. I have bought them. I have purchased them. I have acquired them at great cost to myself, at the price of my own son. And they are mine. Scripture says the Lord, he is a jealous God. Does that sound like good news to you or not? Oprah Winfrey did uh, an interview a number of years ago, and uh, she was asked about her spiritual leanings. And in that interview, she said, I'm, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm follower, not a follower of Christianity. I don't, really, I, I don't really like the God of the Bible. One of the reasons I don't like the God of the Bible is because the Bible says that God is a jealous God. Oh, dear Oprah, you missed it terribly. By the way, Oprah Winfrey might have been named for Orpah, not a great namesake, but that it got misspelled. I don't know the truth of that legend, but so I've been told. If it's true, that's not a great deal. Regardless, the jealousy of God was a put-off for her. But for the child of God, who understands that through a transaction that has taken place by the work of another, I now have a father. I now have a redeemer. I have a savior who is jealous for me and does not want anything else to stand in, in the way of my love for him or his love for me. When the word jealousy is coupled with God, then that's about one of the greatest statements we could ever hope to hear if we are the object of that jealousy. God in his jealousy is beautiful. And at times he will move heaven and earth and he will tear down walls to bring his own back to his bosom. When you place your trust in Christ, there is a transaction that takes place in eternity that changes everything. And now God, who formerly was an enemy of mine and yours, so says Romans 5, when we live apart from Christ, when we don't yet know him as Savior, he now becomes not only a husband, a Savior, a father, a keeper, but he is jealous in that love for us. When we come to Christ, we are, through this one transaction by faith in what Jesus has done, transferred, Colossians says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. It says that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We become heirs of the God of the universe. There's some 30-odd things, somebody counted, that happen at the moment of our conversion. Through one transaction, you have an eternal inheritance. Now, I will say that it's not actually perfect because uh, perfect parallel in the sense that Ruth and Boaz aren't married yet. But the main accomplishment that needed to take place, the transaction that made it possible, that's now been done in these opening words. When you come to Christ, that transaction is taking place for you when the Spirit comes to live in you. And now you have an eternal inheritance. I want you to notice that what is about to happen with Ruth is she is about to go from being a foreigner, even of another people that are um, adversaries of Israel. Uh, she's about to go from being uh, a widow. She's about to go from being uh, a beggar to being a wife and an heir 
and grafted into the lineage of Israel, and in fact, eventually, grafted into the greatest lineage in all of human history, the one that will lead to the Messiah himself. Our inheritance begins when we come to Christ. Ruth's really begins here at this moment in the gates today, and it will be consummated in a few verses yet. But it carries into all eternity, both Ruth's and yours, if you know Christ. Through one transactions, you have, you have an eternal inheritance. Second, second picture of our redemption. Notice God's grace may come to us in unlikely places. God's grace may come to us in unlikely places. Pick up in verse 11. Now all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. They're echoing back to Boaz. Yes, yes, it's just as you said. We saw it. We are here. We, we confess it. We agree. We are witnesses. Now may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Pause there. We see providence at work once again in this chapter. It was there right at the very beginning in verse 1. Well, looky there. There's the nearest kinsman. I wonder what he's doing just walking down the road this morning at exactly this time. Probably the giving of a blessing at the time of a betrothal is um, somewhat customary in the nation of Israel, right? Uh, we see blessings many times in Scripture, and sometimes at great events, uh, at a wedding or a betrothal, at the birth of a child, uh, near the death of the patriarchs is one particular time we see quite often. And so what they say here is, in a sense, um, Again, something we could look at, um, kind of like, oh, it's just another, uh, it's just another day in the gates. Oh, it's just, a, it's just the ceiling of you know another commercial transaction. If we didn't have eyes for the providence of God, because when we uh, look through the words that the author has recorded for us, uh, we see there's so much more here. There is a blessing here that is very peculiar, and the blessing is in fact prophetic, prophetic, because everything that the, that the people say will come to pass. In fact, it will come to pass in a way even more that they, than they themselves who give the blessing could ever expect. First, I just want you to notice there in the middle of 11, uh, when it says of Boaz, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, uh, I have a marginal note that says that's the same word as valor. That is where Boaz is called the Ish Chayil, the man of valor. And they commend him as such, and his character has been consistent with it throughout. Now, Ruth and Boaz, um, being people of such great character, that's, that's not the unexpected part. We're going to get to this unlikely places in a second, but it is the backbone of the story. What is unexpected? Well, what did they say to Boaz? May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Okay, well, that sounds like a fairly customary greeting, uh, sorry, blessing. Out of betrothal, right? Okay, so you're going to marry this woman. May, may you be fruitful. May your lives be blessed. May it, may it even be like Rachel and Leah. Except for one thing that's terribly, terribly unexpected. Where is Ruth from? Is she from Israel? 
Oh, wait, but, 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 maybe, but then again, maybe the people don't know that she's a Moabite, or do they? Yeah, it says it twice in our passage just this morning, right? Right there in the presence. In fact, it's what the caused the, the nearest kinsman to backpedal. And so here they speak a blessing over Boaz and Ruth that they would be like Rachel and Leah, who were the very origin of the nation. But the crazy thing is they're speaking it over a woman who's adversarial, at least in her lineage. She's a Moabitess. I would think a good Israelite reading this story who didn't have any other context, any other context or knowledge of it would, would be prone to want to chafe at this point if they weren't of a gracious spirit. Lord, how can you possibly do that? That's just not right. I don't know. Maybe they've been won over by Ruth's character by now. But it would be very much out of the ordinary. Here's my question. Is that blessing just pie in the sky? Is it just customary congratulations? No, because what's going to happen? No, she, through her offspring, offspring, is going to do much more than just originate the nation of Israel, but rather bring forth the Messiah who will originate the very people of God through all the ages. What great providence. What a great blessing. Notice also here mention in verse 13 of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Mike did a great job of talking about this last week, so I won't go into that. Tamar and Ruth are in similar situations in a certain way, and then there's some important differences between them. The point here is that in both cases, God gave outrageous blessing in a very unlikely way. And that's what we're going to have here, even more that we might expect. All this will come to pass, and all of it will be to the glory of God. And who will get all the credit? I want you to notice where grace meets providence because it's right here in this passage. What does it say in verse 12? What is their blessing? It's really a request too. Through the offspring which Yahweh will give you by this young woman. How is this blessing going to come? Yahweh's gift. His grace. That's how she's going to be written into the lineage of the Messiah. Not, not because she was... Sure, a godly woman, but so godly, she's got to be included in the, you know, the, the hall of faith. No, all of grace that God will do it. And notice what it says again of Rachel and Leah, the blessing. It says, um, Rachel and, and Leah, who built up the house of Israel, they are praying that this woman and through her will bless the whole nation of Israel. You know what's crazy? And even more so in the context of this day, the people reading this would understand, I know that God made a promise to Abraham. And that promise was that through Abraham and through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, right? Do you know what just happened in this little prophetic blessing? It was the seizing of the Abrahamic promise in reverse, because this Gentile from one of the nations is going to come and wed and be married, grafted into the lineage, and through her child, through her, this foreigner, the nation of Israel will be built up like Rachel and Leah. It is a terribly unexpected, overwhelming picture of God's grace. How will the nation of Israel remember Ruth for generations after this? As a Moabitess? No. 
they'll remember Ruth the, the Moabitess, but then they'll laugh at the name. They don't know she's, she's one of ours. She's one of the godly women, one of the matriarchs in Israel who brought us our Savior. This passage also, as I said, mentions wealth and fame, but if we understand the words that are behind those, I've already addressed the first one. They say um, of Boaz something about his wealth, but it's, it's valor, it is honor. We're going to come back to the one for fame in just a minute. The point is, is that all honor ultimately that is being given in this passage is going to be so unexpected, be so a result of providence, and going to be so tied back to grace through this gift that God will give that nobody expected that it will all ultimately give him glory. All honor comes from God. All riches, all fame, all name, it all comes from God. You might jot down 1 Chronicles 29. There's a passage that says the same things, but just in more explicit words. But it's appropriate for us as we'll take this to application. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 12. David, um, in, um, in blessing the people uh, with regard to the temple. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God of Israel, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And here's the point. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen anyone. So how are you and I seeking for ourselves to be known in our lives, do we seek it from the Lord or do we seek it in our own power? Do we seek it from him directly or do we seek to scheme and accomplish it in our own ways? God's grace is huge and he is willing to give name and position, honor and riches, power and wealth and glory if he so chooses, but all come from his hand. Some, in fact, may come through suffering or through sacrifice, through difficulty or through disappointment. But make no mistake, in the end, God will be the giver, and no one will regret that. Next, we get a picture of our redemption, verses 13 through 17, in that all merit comes to us through another. All merit comes to us through another. 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So understand that verse 13 covers at least nine months, right? There is just a day in the gates, and that's where we are at the end of verse 12, with a lot of blessing and prophecy. And then verse 14, there's going to be a little boy. So nine months plus has passed. Then the women said to Naomi, 14, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of 
of David. Pause there. Uh, pause for a side note. Naomi becomes the nurse of Obed. Don't know if that's literal or not. You can read the commentaries, and I'm not sure if they know either. God could have done a miraculous thing, and she may have nursed her grandson. I don't know. I think what's there, though, regardless, is very much symbolic. Laying the child in her lap is uh, a signature of a symbolism of adoption, as, as though, in a sense, she is taking this child even as her own son. I don't think that's legally what's taking place, but it absolutely fits with everything that's going on in the whole chapter. The redeemer of uh, Obed, the baby, is the redeemer not only of Ruth, but also of Naomi in this whole passage. How is, then, Naomi blessed? Because we see her by the end who, who started full and went out to another land, returned home empty and bitter, now slowly make the progression back to being full again. How is she blessed? Well, first, she's blessed just by Yahweh, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you. He has not forgotten you. He has walked with you through this all. Friends, if you know Christ, can Yahweh ever forget you? Remember what, what the Messiah says? Is it in Isaiah, one of the prophets? Where he says, I, I, I could as soon forget my own as a, as a mother could forget her nursing child. Look, look, their names are graven on my hands. And what does that make you think of? I could never, I could never forget them. Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you. He has not forgotten you. Wherever you're wrestling today, whatever you're going through, maybe you're still in the empty, bitter, distant place and you don't see it yet. Yahweh hasn't forgotten. Second, she's blessed not just through Yahweh, ultimately through Yahweh, but specifically then through Boaz. Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a redeemer today. This is the same term that is used for that kinsman redeemer, first the other gentleman and then eventually Boaz. So it's Boaz here. So he is the one who is acting uh, to bring about all this redemption. God is doing it behind Boaz, but it's Boaz bringing this about for Naomi. And then whom, whom else? Oh, yeah, well, let's not forget the, the little baby. At the end of verse 14, it says, may his name become famous in Israel I think that the middle of verse 14 switches from Boaz to Obed, but you can fight over that. Um, because 15 ends with, um, speaking of Ruth, and says, she has given birth to him, who is the him. He is the one, starting in 15, who will be a restorer of your life and the sustainer of your old age. And I think back up to verse 14, may his name become famous. Um, we already have Boaz's name famous back up in verse 11. The point is, of all of that, whether you include that one phrase or not, the blessing on Obed and, and the work that Obed is going to do, he's going to restore life. He's going to sustain Naomi's old age. These blessings now coming through Obed. But who is, the, who is the restorer, right? Who is the sustainer? Still Yahweh, first working through Boaz, now then and going forward, working through Obed. And then finally, how else is Naomi blessed? Well, there's a third vehicle here. Almost as, as though she has been forgotten by this point in the story. Oh, yeah, there's that girl. We named the book after her. 
But the women in Israel won't let Naomi forget. The women in Bethlehem, when Naomi said, don't, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter. I went out full and I've come back empty. And Ruth stood there maybe sheepishly next to her. The women in Israel remember Ruth and won't let Naomi forget and won't let us forget. May he, in verse 15, I think it's Obed, may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your own age for your daughter-in-law. There she is, right there. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to her. Naomi, you have a son today, but you have someone who's been so loyal and faithful to you better than seven sons through whom God has brought you this blessing. What we need to see, because the story is really about Naomi's character in the book of Ruth and all that she goes through, that when we get to the end, we see blessing upon blessing upon her, and none of it is her doing, just like our redemption. Through Boaz, through Obed, through Ruth, all because of Yahweh. And so it is with us. All of our merit comes to us through another. Our redemption is all over this story in the book of Ruth because we need the merit to come to us through another. You, friend, are like Ruth. You need a Boaz, someone of character who will take up the responsibility for everything that concerns you, one who would wed you and take you into his home. You are like Naomi, needing a Ruth, one who is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, to quote Proverbs, one who is loyal and serves and washes feet. You are Naomi, needing an Obed, one who comes to you and restores your life, one who sustains you, a redeemer, you are like Israel, even as we get to, to verse 17 here, and we now get Jesse and David, every Israelite, every Israelite reading this would just be overwhelmed with joy, saying, oh, that's where the story's going. David, the great king, through whom will come the eternal king. Your Israel needing a David, a champion of your life, a leader of your life, a king and master and Lord over your life. This story for Israel is our story. It's our need. We stand condemned. We were born of a foreign race, adversarial to God and his people. But like Ruth, we can be redeemed. Like Naomi, we can be made full. We need a redeemer, and that is the Lord Jesus, of course. And all of this has come through God's work. Notice what it says in the, the end of verse 12. When, when the people in the gate bless Boaz, they say, this offspring which Yahweh will give you. And then later, notice in 13, how does Ruth get pregnant? Answer, Yahweh. Like, no, I think Boaz was part of that. It's not what the passage says. I mean, he is, but 
and Yahweh enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Uh, a friend uh, once said, two people can, can sleep together, uh, but it takes God to make a baby. Um, a child is God's decision. Um, and this one, um, in, in amazing ways, God gave to Ruth this child. Um, by the way, to put that in context, uh, Ruth was already married, maybe for the better part of a decade or even the whole decade, right? And they didn't have any children. But she does now. All of it is God's work. God gave her the ability to conceive. God gave this child through the young woman. God gave is the keynote of all that is ours as followers of Christ. God gave. God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God gave his spirit and God gave and God gave, right? Finally then, the last picture of our redemption. And that is that God gives us a new name. He gives us a new name and a place in the story. 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab. To Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon, Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Bringing it full circle. This lineage is why the book of Ruth is here. It's a glorious story of how two people interested in um, joining their lives in union, in marriage before God, ought to uh, behave themselves, comport themselves. Yes, there's tons to take away that's glorious in that sense. But the reason the book is here is not just because there was a godly young woman and a godly not-so-young man in Israel, and they came together, and God helped provide for her and her family in a time of her destitution, but because that whole story leads to Messiah. And at the time when it was written, all we need to know is it gets to David, because if you know David, you know the rest. It takes you to Messiah. By the way, the book of Matthew will start with almost these exact same words, a couple slight changes, um, certain things maybe left out, but all of it lining up. So I just want to close by asking, what's, um, what's in a name? Because I think the way that the passage is written shows us that this is the interest of the author. It's a, it's a primary interest at this point. I want you to um, look again back up to uh, verse 9. When Boaz gathers the men in the gate, notice, and granted, it's a legal proceeding, but he makes sure that everything gets, you know, gets entered by the, um, by the clerk, right, into the record. You are witnesses today, and he names everybody, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess. So he gets all the names in there. Names are extremely important. You go, well, okay, that's not convincing. Well, keep going. Look at verse 10. Why is Boaz doing what he's doing? He tells us, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased. And he goes on, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off. The perpetuation of the name 
is the reason for Boaz doing what he's doing in the court. And that has legal ramifications under the Leveret law under which he is operating. So the name is exceedingly important. We're told then in verse 11 when the people bless Boaz, and it says at the end of 11, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. We already talked about the word wealth, right? Valor. Let's talk about the other word, that you may become famous, right? They say, dude, we totally hope that your videos, like on TikTok, go to number one. <laughs> we hope that, like, you are the highest paid actor in Hollywood. The literal rendering there for become famous is your name will be called. That's what they say. And may your name be called in Bethlehem. Called what? No. May your name be called. May your name be known. May you have a name is literally what it says. And then we get down to 17. And what word appears twice? The neighbor women gave the child a name. The son's been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then you hit verse 18, and it is a lineage, name after name after name after name. So what? Let's go back to where we began in verse 1. Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz was passing by. And so he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Who passed by? Did they tell us who he is? What is his name? The nearer kinsman. What's his name? Okay, we're going to do a quick pop quiz. You get 100%, and I don't know what you get if you win. You just have to write down the name of the kinsman redeemer. Who can pass? None of us. Because, oh, the author sort of left that out. His name. <laughs> and isn't it interesting? Boaz will marry Ruth, and his name will not be forgotten for all eternity. <laughs> you know, it's even cooler. When he says here, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Friend is not what it says in the Hebrew. Um, you will probably have a textual note trying to explain what the Hebrew says there. And the answer is, it is just a weird little rhyming phrase. I'm not even really quite sure what Boaz said to the guy. Um, it's something like uh, Poloni Almoni or something like that. I might not have it quoted exactly right. He says, uh, come, and, come and sit here, Poloni Almoni, and then watch the commentators have a field day trying to figure out what in the world that is because it is not anybody's name. It's used almost two other times in Scripture. And the two other times it's used, it's not used of a person, it's used of a place, and it's always translated such and such a place, or uh, the, the mountain known as so-and-so, something like that. Do you know what the author puts in the very place where Boaz would say, sit here, and he would have to say the guy's name. He says, sit here, such and such, and then he goes on, like so obviously not telling us the guy's name. Why? Because today you don't know his name, and I don't know his name, and nobody knows his name. He went down to complete, you know, um, oblivion of, of uh, famousness. Uh, I can't think of the word, but you know what I mean. He went to nowhere because he had no name. 
so he has no abiding memory. He may have been a godly Israelite. may have served his family well. He may be in heaven. Um, if we meet him, that'll be an interesting discussion. But the way the passage is written is not to show us what a terrible guy he is. It's just to exalt the value of the name and to see what happens when an honorable person chooses for the sake of a lineage that he has been transacted into or she chooses to invest herself into, see what happens to those names. Because you know Ruth and Boaz today, don't you? And we speak their names today. They end up having great names. In the end, the Lord himself, when we trust in him, gives us a new name. And he gives us a place in his story. And today, I don't know what your struggles might be and what mine might be of the coming week. But I know by trusting Christ that the Lord has given me a name. And the Lord has given you a place in his story. And it will not be forgotten for all eternity, friends. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I don't, I don't know how we can make it more starkly obvious the need that you have. You are like this man who, when it came to the moment to say his name, he just said, well, that's Mr. So-and-so. That, that is he whose name shall not be spoken, right? As far as being a part of the purpose of God, if you are not yet bought by Christ, then you are no part of that purpose. But the Lord desires through a single transaction to give you an eternal inheritance and to write you into the lineage of his people forever. Friend, is there anything else in your life that is worth holding on to that would take the place of having that? I don't think so. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, as we bow here, we thank you for this story of these precious folks, not perfect, but people bought, people purchased, people blessed because of your perfect work through them and the glory that you would bring to your name. You, Lord Jesus, are the greater and truer Boaz. You didn't just take a widow in in her destitution, but rather you make a bride for yourself and you wash her and make her beautiful to present to yourself one day on that great day. You, Lord Jesus, the truer and greater Boaz, did not just earn the rights to a property, but you will bring your people into a promised land. Nay, Eden itself, the very height of perfection made for us one day. You are the truer and greater Boaz, the redeemer of our souls. We thank you today and we invite you this week to enter consciously into that story like Boaz did, like Ruth did. Would you, Lord Jesus, remind us often of the story that you are writing and your incredible grace that allows us to have a name and play a part in it. We will thank you for it and we'll praise you. All to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here to worship with us this morning. Have a great week.